this week on the Backtable Podcast. So I think they're both great options. It'll be interesting to see when they're both FDA approved that is there really a reason to move to sacral for certain types of patients? I think that there will be. There will always be a need for that. But trying to tease out that patient selection, who will do just fine with a peripheral stimulatory option versus who needs a central, you know, sacral nerve root stimulatory option. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. The Jose Ocha Silva is your host this week, and we have a special guest today. We have uh, Dr. Suzette Sutherland from the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Sutherland is a director of female urology and a member of the Pelvic Health Center at University of Washington Medical Center. She is an associate professor of urology. Dr. Sutherland earned her MD at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, she stayed there for residency as well. Further specialty training in the areas of female urology and female sexual health were done in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Boston. She is a board certified in both female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery and urology. Dr. Sutherland is a collaborator on many clinical trials regarding all things female urology, including neurostimulation. Today, we're going to go talk about what's new in neurostimulation. So welcome to Backtable, Suzette. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here. I'm excited to be part of this. No, we're very excited to have you here. So, so Suzette, let's just jump on it and, and let's just start talking first about uh, who's a candidate for neurostimulation. Well, traditionally, we think about those patients who have overactive bladder, right? Hypersensitivity in the bladder where they go to the bathroom frequently, urgency frequency, as well as maybe it's so much urgency they can't make it to the bathroom in time, that's urge incontinence. So that's the classic kind of patient that does well with neuromodulation. Of course, it's for patients who have also failed some other conservative trials first. We don't just jump to neuromodulation. They've had to have worked a little bit on some behavioral things, dietary things, pelvic floor exercises, some medications. But those patients that just don't do well with all of that combination together for one reason or another, then they're definitely a great candidate for neuromodulation. And let's, I, I saw this patient today, so I'm going to share it with you. It's a patient that has radical prostatectomy like 15 to 20 years ago. But last year, he was diagnosed with Parkinson. And since she, he's been having symptoms of overactive bladder, uh, today I saw him for the first time. I usually, on my patients, uh, I, I talk about behavioral modification. I always mention the pills or, or, or ph pharmacoceuticals. We talk about Botox, we talk about neurostimulation. So he said he also want pills. He has difficulty swallowing pills. He said that his wife had Botox, but he prefers something else. So he knew, he knew about neurostimulation. I mean, is a patient that doesn't want to try anything else is a candidate for neurostimulation? Well, I think uh, you look at the severity of their problem and talk to them about the risks and benefits. And I think that they are a candidate. I think it has to be justified. Uh, through their insurance, why they either don't want to or can't do a medication trial. Many of the medications cause, you know, significant dry mouth, significant constipation. We're concerned now about some cognitive impairment with some of the anticholinergics now as well. So there might be reasons that a patient just doesn't feel comfortable trying one of those medications for that reason or, or already is plagued with significant constipation and doesn't want to make it worse. So 
No, I do think it's patient selection is key. And it's also, you know, what you can justify with their insurance in order to get the insurance to cover it if they haven't tried some other things and truly failed those other things. So, you know, the devil's in the details. You just have to provide the documentation. No, yeah. And I asked, I mean, I, I told him exactly that. I, I'm still going to do the urodynamics, do cystoscopy, make sure there's nothing else going on. But yeah, I, I think it's the first time I had a patient that they, they want to go straight into neuromodulation. So it was funny that we have this episode today. I think I was going to say we do see a little bit more of that now. And that's with all of the media attention around the traditional overactive bladder medications and concerns about dementia right, the anticholinergics. There are two of those drug classes, anticholinergic and then a beta agonist. The anticholinergics, most of them cross the blood-brain barrier and there's concern about cognitive impairment or potential for, I should say. I mean, truly the jury is still out, but, you know, you bring that to some a patient's attention and they don't want to mess with it, right? They're like, I don't want to be the guinea pig and find out if it's true or not. The beta agonists, on the other hand, they do not cross the blood-brain barrier, so there's no concern for that. But even getting them covered by insurance sometimes is quite difficult. But the point there is that I think the word is out about this dementia potential, and many patients come in already, I find, and just say, I've heard about these drugs. I'm not trying them. So what else can we do besides drugs? So, you know, in that sense, moving on to neuromodulation is a great option. So, I mean, yeah, you mentioned that, but my question, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, the insurance is going to dictate what we do. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's true. Unfortunately, exactly. So let's talk about, I mean, what's new? I mentioned that, that you collaborated in a lot of clinical trials. So mention one of the, some of the things that are out there that the patients have something else available. Yeah, I think... You know, one of the newest things that people are looking at is how do we make tibial nerve stimulation? So traditionally PTNS, percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. How do we make that accessible to patients when there's a great burden for them having to come into the office on a regular basis? The traditional program is putting a little like acupuncture needle right in the ankle and hooking it up to the stimulator and they get a 30-minute stimulation session. But the program that is FDA-approved and now covered by insurance is set that you come once a week for 12 weeks. And then whatever benefit that you've gained from that, the studies show that the patient needs to come back about every three to four weeks for sort of another session in order to maintain that benefit that they've gleaned from that. And so you know, many patients just can't do that. They can't come to the office once a week or then once a month uh, for a variety of reasons. So the whole idea is how can we still let patients benefit from this easy access kind of stimulation, but do it at home? And definitely you, you mentioned that, uh, that FDA approved and, and you're mentioning that one stimuli can last up to two, three, three weeks. Well, when they've gone through the whole treatment phase out to 12 weeks, then what we see is the study that was done that just showed, okay, uh, if we stop doing it every week, at what point do the patients sort of raise their hand and say, oh, uh, it's starting to wear off now, I need another session. And it happened on average about 21 days in that study. It was a nice study done by Ken Peters at Beaumont. And that was some time ago now already. So that's how the protocol kind of came about, how they chose once a week in the very first place 
to study this type of therapy. I don't know how they did that, but that's what then they presented to the FDA and that's what's approved. So ergo, that's what insurance will cover. But the question is, do patients need that once a week? Could they do it less? Or if they did it more often, would they even gain more benefit? I think we traditionally think of PTNS as for that mild to moderate patient. And then we think about the other types of neuromodulation, sacral nerve stimulation, where the therapy is getting directed right to the sacral root. We think of that being able to help patients that have more moderate to severe symptoms. So the question is, if a patient can do tibial nerve stimulation, say on a daily basis, will they get more benefit and will it rival that of sacral nerve stimulation? So again, to use that same term, that jury is still out too, but I think those studies are definitely coming considering the options that we have that are coming down the pike here. And for PTN, I mean, right now, what is out there? Well, the only one that is FDA approved right now is the eCoin. So it's about the size of a nickel. It gets implanted into the ankle above the fascia, make a a small little incision and get it in underneath the skin. And it has, it's a full contained battery generator, everything that's there. It gets turned on and then it's stimulating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's stimulating that tibial nerve to help with the overactive bladder symptoms. That just became FDA approved finally after going through a number of trials. I think there's still some issues with it pertaining to reimbursement. So it hasn't been that widely adopted uh, at this point, which was a bit of a surprise. We thought when it was FDA approved finally, people would just sort of jump on this bandwagon because it's so easy to implant. So, you know, their initial data shows that it does work for overactive bladder. I think it's still a little bit more in that mild or moderate category of patients. And then the other aspect of it is is that it's a full battery inside this little nickel. And when the battery dies, it dies. So then you have to take it out and you put a new one in. And the batteries last somewhere between one, two, I think maybe on some trials, it was maybe up to about three years, depending on you know, how much intensity needed to be used in order to get the efficacy that the patients needed. But, you know, on average, it's about every one to two years, you're popping it out with a little surgery, nonetheless, little, but still taking it out and putting another one in. So it is kind of ongoing cost, ongoing a little surgery. There's some thoughts about it too. We don't know yet, but there are some just theoretical thoughts. Every time you take it out and put a new one in, Are you causing more scar around that tibial nerve bundle? And will that cause more impedance such that it's not working as well for the patients anymore? So I did have had an opportunity to speak to some of the patients that were on the trials. And they said in some patients, they saw a little bit of that and they wondered if that was what was happening. But then there were also patients that did very well and continued to. So again, I think we just need more time to study these patients and see what really happens for the long term. And in terms of the e-coin, I mean, do you adjust the current of the generator or, or, I mean, in terms of the voltage or anything like that, or is it just a, a continuous impulse? I think it, you know, I have never implanted one in a patient myself, so I'm not as familiar with that one. I'm more familiar with the blue wind because I'm on that trial or was on that trial. But I think the e-coin, it gets 
uh, the parameters get set and gets placed in the patient and then it stays. Now you probably have the ability to put sort of the programmer around it and turn it on and off and maybe change some of the stimulatory parameters, just like the traditional neuromodulation that we think about. But the idea is that it's pretty simple programming and just, you know, set it and forget it kind of thing. So the other one that I am involved with is the Blue Wind trial, and that is another implantable type in the ankle, but it's just the lead itself that gets implanted. So it's very small. It gets implanted below the fascia, so you don't feel it when you touch the ankle after everything's all healed. And then the patient wears, like an I call it an ankle bracelet, to be honest, the first generation looks a little bit like the patient is on parole because they have this ankle bracelet around. But that's what communicates within the device that's implanted. That, again, can be programmed. I am familiar, more familiar with that, and there's more sophisticated programming that can happen with that. So it's programmed to the patient's needs. And then the patients do their sessions at home. On the trial... On this trial, the patients used it 30 minutes, a 30-minute session, twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And it was a trial that went out to one year. The data was just presented at a late-breaking abstract at the AUA that was just in Chicago here just uh, earlier this month. So we're really excited about getting that data out and letting people know that it does seem to be working quite well. And the ones that you have done, you do it in the OR? Are you doing it in the office? Well, the idea long-term will be that it's done in the office. These were all done in outpatient surgery center for control issues, right, about that it is. This was a multi-center trial. There were 150 patients over 23 centers in the United States and Europe. So they wanted to control for as many variables as possible. So they made everybody do it in the OR. But the patients had it done under local, though, so very few had any IV sedation. That was for individualized reasons, but most people were just done under local. So having done quite a number of these, it's very easily an office procedure. So when it does ultimately get FDA approved and can be used more broadly, then people can do it as they choose, and it can easily be done in the office. One issue, the difference that people talk about between ecoin and something like this is that you do have to open up the fascia in the ankle and place it below the fascia right on the neurovascular bundle. And some people are a little timid about that. We're urologists. What do we know about ankle anatomy, right? It is so easy. It really is easy. Once you've done a few, then you it's easy to find. And then if there's some variation in the anatomy, there is the use of ultrasound that you can learn how to use that to try and find your landmarks a little bit more easily if there's some variation in anatomy. But by and large, uh, you use bony landmarks, measurements, cut down, there it is. So you place it below the fascia. And as I said, for that reason, it stays nicely where you put it. It's right on the neurovascular bundle. You know, there, there will be a question in the future. Does it need to be below the fascia? I mean, we don't know, but we know it does work the way it's being done right now, and they're just doing a lot of control since it is an FDA approval trial. And in terms of technically, what are you looking for when you do the placement? I mean, for ex I, I contrast it to to the sacral neurostimulation that you're looking for bellows and, and, and toe. Are you looking for any signs? Yes, absolutely. Exactly the same. 
you know, just place the little lead and it's just the tiny lead part, that's it. And you just place it right on top of the neurovascular bundle and then you do do intraoperative testing. The patients, if they're awake, sometimes they can feel it in the same ooh-ah spots that we think about for sacral nerve stimulation, but we are looking for the toe movement. We don't look for bellows because they're sort of laying a little bit on their side so you can get to the inner ankle and that would be too hard to do. But we know if we can get some good toe and a ooh-ah feeling, then we know we're in, a, in the right spot, right? So we're not worried, like with sacral nerve stimulation, you're worried, are you in S2, S3, S4? You might be getting some of the symptoms or the you know, movement that you traditionally look for, but you don't know which one you're really in unless you get all of those kind of together. Here is the neurovascular bundle. There's just one place to be. And this, w- this wouldn't be indicated for a patient, for example, uh, the non-obstructive urine retention, like some... Yeah, well, it could be, right? The FDA approval trial is just, again, having to control just to get it approved, right? So it's, it is an OAB wet study. So that's another good thing. I said to you, started off by saying PTNS often is, in my mind anyway, and with my experience, you know, is that it's really for more than mild to moderate patients, but not really for people who are wetting quite a bit. I haven't really seen a lot of success with just traditional PTNS with people who are wetting a lot. And this was an OAB wet study. The patients had on average of almost five leaks per day and with an urgency frequency of about 10 voids per day. So it's a significant patient population. And just with the twice a day, 30 minute stimulation, At six months, they had almost 77% of the patients were deemed responders, meaning hitting that improvement greater than 50% that we always talk about for neuromodulation. And at 12 months, it was almost 79%. And at 12 months, 50% of the patients were 100% dry. So that tells you, you know, that goes back to my comment before, if you're able to do the therapy on a daily basis, will you actually see more efficacy? And I think that's what we indeed really saw with this. So it was exciting to uh, have that presented at the AUA this year. And how was at the AUA? I didn't saw that, that presentation. I mean, how was the reception? Yeah, it was good. I think we had a lot of questions from people afterwards. I At the uh, Blue Wind booth, I had an opportunity to just talk about my experience, and there were lots of people that came by to just learn more about the therapy. Again, asking that question, I'm a urologist, what do I know about the ankle? Can I really do this? And so (laughs) having models and showing people, yeah, I think, you know, as we've been saying for so long, you know, the data is really what makes the difference. And now we have good data to show that this is really something that I think will certainly compete with everything else, tibial nerve, and will it compete with sacral nerve maybe in the future? That we'll see. And you don't need, you don't need flora for this, just pure, purely landmarks? Nope. So that's, so you can easily, again, do it in the office. Well, I guess we do fluoro sometimes in the office too, but you don't need fluoro. What we, I guess, you do patient selection is important. I would say for the e-coin it is as well. You implanting something in somebody's ankle And so you need to make sure they have a nice, healthy ankle. The skin there doesn't always heal as nicely as it does in other places in the body because it is so peripheral. You have to think about the blood supply. You're not going to put it in somebody who has pitting edema and brawny peripheral vascular changes with diabetes, right? That's probably not the best patient 
you're going to probably have some wound healing issues. So you do want to be careful about that. We did keep the wounds, you know, wrapped for several weeks, and then we didn't turn the stimulation on until it had healed for a month and then turned the stimulation on. That's how it was in the trial. Once it gets in real hands, real time, I'm sure people can feel it out and do what they think is best for themselves. The other thing is in, in the trial, there were 150 patients and there were really no serious adverse events. There weren't any explants or infections. So it really shows there's very, very low risk and showing to be a good alternative. At least it's safe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so move, moving on, I mean, so, so those are the, the two tibial nerve simulator. In terms of, of, of sacral stimulation, what's new? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it bears discussing kind of quickly that we had just one type of sacral nerve stimulation for oh so many years because one company had the corner on the market. And what's developed over the last handful of years has been the development of a rechargeable battery, which allowed the battery to be a little bit smaller as well as not have to explant the prior battery that only lasted about three to five years, you could have a rechargeable battery and that recharging, they might have to recharge at a variety of different intervals, but at least the battery itself would last for about 15 years. So they didn't have to have another surgery every three to five years just to take the battery out and put in a new one. So that was a wonderful advancement. But in the meantime, both of the companies that are out there, Medtronic and Exonix, have come out with fixed batteries, right? Now they have a fixed battery that lasts 15 years. So, you know, the question really is what's the benefit of the rechargeable at this point? It was great when we didn't have any other options, but now there is an option, a fixed battery. It's a tad bit larger than the rechargeable, but yet... It's a fixed battery, lasts 15 years. And so that's been wonderful that they've, both companies have worked aggressively to make this happen so that patients have that as an option. Like I mentioned to you the other day, uh, most of my patients that had the rechargeable one, I switched to the no rechargeable one and, and they're very happy. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I ask a lot of different providers, you know, across the country, so what do you do? And how do you decide? Or And they say, so far, I think many have said, well, I just leave it up to the patient. Do you like the idea of recharging? Sometimes people like having some input into their therapy, I guess you could say. So in my mind, I see that as a little more of a psychological component. But then there's definitely the camp who just wants to set it and forget it and not have to think about, oh, the red light's going on. I have to go recharge it pretty soon. Or you know, you just know it's going to last for 15 years. So I do think that the rechargeable option, again, I'm not poo-pooing it. I do think it was wonderful advancement when it came, but we have more advancements now. And I'm I'm in the camp that you are, that why would you go back? It's just a little bit bigger than the others. And when you look at where we came from, but again, it's an option. So you can always give the patients a choice and let them, if you show them the device and let them choose what they want. Yeah, and sometimes for patients with MS that they're already wheelchair bound, sometimes it became it was a little bit difficult for them to charge it. Not all the time they they, they figure it out, but once I offer something else, most of them just hey, okay, let's let's change it. 
So aside from that, the newer device, I guess, is called Nuspera, and I'm involved in that trial as well. They've had their phase one trial completed, showed really great success, and now they're opening up to a phase two multicenter trial. So what that is, is it's much like the blue wind in the sense that it's just this tiny little lead, but it's just the lead that gets implanted at the sacral nerve root. It looks just like the tined lead for the traditional sacral nerve stimulation. It just in that lead has a little the metal components to it, right? So the leads and the tines are in it. But then the IPG, what really makes it work, all of the hardware is right there in that little device there. And so that's what gets implanted, just that. It goes in the same way through a percutaneous approach with the needle and through the access sheath, and it gets implanted like you would normally plant your sacral nerve stimulation lead. It's just then you push it in there with a pusher and it pops it in. You leave it in and there's no wire connecting to it. So there's no wire to connect to the generator per se, right? It works via Bluetooth. And so there's a circular pad that gets placed in specialized underwear and it hovers right over the area where the lead is in the back. And that's what communicates with the lead. So you can program it, sophisticated programming, just like you do with all sacral nerve stimulation options. Turn it on, off, up, down, so on and so forth. But all that hardware isn't implanted. So that's the benefit, right? It's a percutaneous delivery system that you just place the little lead with the tiny little tines on it, and that's it. No more hardware. And so clearly that's advantageous to people who look at all the hardware we implant with the traditional sacral nerve stimulation and don't want all that, right? They don't want all that implanted. Definitely. And, and go, go, going back to what you were mentioning at some point, do, do we need constant stimulation versus intermittent? Right. So this is one that's an intermittent. And for the phase one trial, they did a dose range aspect to it where all the patients started at being stimulated two hours a day. And then if they needed to, they went up to four hours a day. And then if they needed to, they could go up to eight hours a day. And they did so until they reached that 50% improvement mark that we always talk about with all forms of neuromodulation. The interesting thing in that phase one trial, they had 34 patients that all the patients, almost all, 33 out of 34, achieved success with only the two hours a day. So although they had provided for the opportunity for patients to have to use it more and more, they found they didn't need to. Two hours was definitely sufficient. So one could ask, is one hour sufficient, right? Well, we don't know that yet. <laughs> so I think all of those kind of dose-dependent studies will follow once these things are FDA approved. We just need to get them approved first. But similarly, this was an OAB wet study. And the patients, again, had a baseline of 4.2 leaks per day. So much like the blue end, it was 4.8 leaks. But you're in that ballpark, right? Four and a half leaks a day. And again, they saw at 12 months, about 80% of the patients met that greater than 50% improvement criteria. 
And they also, at 12 months, had 52% of the patients that were dry. At six months, it was a little less, 36% of the patients dry. But at 12 months, 50%. So those are sort of similar numbers to what the blue wind is achieving. So I think, you know, I think they're both great options. It'll be interesting to see when they're both FDA approved that is there really a reason to move to sacral for certain types of patients? I think that there will be. There will always be a need for that. But trying to tease out that patient selection, who will do just fine with a peripheral stimulatory option versus who needs a central, you know, sacral nerve root stimulatory option. Let me ask you a question because you have mentioned already two of the of the trials that at twelve month they saw improvement. Let's say if you do a, a axonics or a metronic one now, and at three months, even with changing the parameters and everything, they still want something more. At some point, would you change? Would you say let's try reposition it? Is that something that you do in your practice? And if you do, what's the time frame? Yeah, well, I think with traditional sacral nerve stimulation, I certainly have been there. Yes, if patients aren't satisfied and they're, you know, even if they are getting 50% improvement, if they're not happy with it, we might try and place a lead on the other side. Can we get a little bit better response? I mean, I think that's where a lot of the nuance of this type of therapy comes in and experience matters. I think just throwing another lead in on the other side without paying attention to, well, why is the patient not achieving the efficacy that I think that she should. What does that lead look like? If I'm going to do it better on the other side, what am I aiming for? Is it a better curve? Is it not following the nerve very well? Did I get it in too far versus not far enough? I mean, there's got to be something that you're looking at. Or are there other factors pertaining to the patient, right, who maybe doesn't understand the therapy very well? She needs more education and recognize that just because now you have this implant doesn't mean you can drink a pot of coffee before 10 a.m., right? Or go back to all of these other things that you were working on beforehand. So I'm always teasing it out to see if I'm going to do that, how am I going to make it better? And then if the patient wants to try and you don't really have something definitive, you can go ahead and try. But I, I just want to be realistic about what the potential expectations are. So in this case, I, I guess with the new Spera, Sure, you could just try one on the other side. It's the same idea. It's all the same therapy, right? And so it's just the delivery system is different. So especially when we're looking at the new Spera compared to Axonics or Medtronic, it's the same thing. We're putting the lead in the same place and we're using a generator. So why do I think the efficacy will be better if we were to compare new Spera, Axonics, Medtronic in a you know, blinded, randomized trial? We don't. It's the same therapy. But when we're looking at the tibial nerve stimulation, now we're looking at, huh, is there a difference in efficacy between these two types? And in terms of, I have a question regarding the nonospera. I mean, you implanted the same. Let's say if you need to remove it, is it easier? Is it going to be flush with the skin that you can just pick it out? Or how's it going to be? Or is it going to be more deep in the sacrum? It is deeper in the sacrum, but there is a string that is attached to it. And so you can come down and try and find the string. I've not been in a position to, uh, I'm just getting started myself on the trial. So I haven't implanted one in a patient. I've done it in cadavers and in, or in the model, I mean, and taken one out in the model. 
but I have talked to other people who have done it. It is doable, but you just need to find that string. And then we can always, if there's ever an issue, you can always do the old-fashioned cut down, right? Like we used to do way back when and open the fascia and get down there and find the lead and pull it out, right, kind of thing. So, I mean, all of these other technologies are meant to get away from that. So we hope that they're simpler, simpler methods. Good. Is there anything else out there? Well, I'm glad you asked. There is one more. <laughs> and this is very novel. Again, it's neuromodulation, and we're stimulating the nerves that ultimately are getting to the pelvic plexus to affect the bladder. And this is called Fempulse, and it's a wearable vaginal stimulator. So it looks much like a pessary, and it has little electrodes going around the surface of it. And the woman wears it in the vagina like a pessary, so you don't really feel it once it's been in there for a while. And again, you can program it however you want. The trial that we've done a couple of feasibility trials so far at the University of Washington. I've been the PI on that. And just looking at safety issues. And then, then the second one was looking at a little bit of efficacy. And we did see improvement when patients just used it for three days. We had 20 patients and the majority of them saw a greater than 50% improvement in their urgency frequency. There were some patients on that that were wet as well and saw some improvement in their OAB leaks as well, So, which was great. So the next trial is a multi-center trial. This is going to be an FDA approval trial. It's likely be compared to medication therapy and just really looking at efficacy. They wear it for a prolonged period of time. Now that we know that it's safe, they're not going to have a vasovagal with it in and pass out. So we had to approve that for the FDA. So the idea here is that it's stimulating the nerves that are around the cervix that go into the pelvic plexus and do the exact same thing to try and calm down that bladder for OAB. Will it work for non-obstructive urinary retention as well? Maybe, just like the tibial nerve, maybe. I mean, those studies have to be done. It's the same therapy again, right? It's, so what we do see with this though is that we fit and we're positioning it and thinking about it as really more for the mild, again, mild to moderate patients. And when there's really such low risk of using this, that it could even be used as first line, right? If not, certainly right in there with second line. And because many people would rather do something like this than take a drug every day, right? So many women use vaginal things, whether it's birth control, right? It could be a ring that you use for birth control or women that have estring, a vaginal estrogen supplementation. That's a ring that they wear. And then again, there's the pessary. So I think there's lots of things that women, you know, already can do in the vagina. And so it's not such a uh, sort of, I don't know, black box, I guess. <laughs> women are open to it. But definitely, this will be in a patient that is not sexually active. Well, you can take it out, right? So we don't know that, but it is a very small little, like a thin pessary. It's just the inner tube part of it. So it's more like an S-string, right? And women are sexually active with intercourse with the S-string in, and even some women with a pessary in, even though it's a dish, are doing fine. A cube or a gelhorn doesn't work. But in any case, yeah, so... 
I guess, you know, those questions will remain to be seen once it does, again, get prime time from FDA approval. And essentially, you, you take it out, you will recharge it, then put it back in. Yes. So at this point, that's looking at that it would be a rechargeable option. But, you know, again, you're back to the, does a woman wear it for an hour a day or does she just leave it in and forget it? So we don't know what women are going to need for the trial. It is going to be set it and forget it because we just need to see enough efficacy to get it FDA approved. But once that happens, I think there's definitely a lot of room for studies to look at how often do you really need to use it. And if a woman likes the idea of just doing a session and not wearing it for the whole day, then perhaps that's what she can do rather than wearing it all the time. This idea really came out of how do we get neuromodulation this form of therapy that we believe in, how do we get it to OAB patients who don't otherwise have access to something like sacral nerve stimulation? And so whether they're in, you know, a poor resource country or a poor resource city here in the United States, or they don't have any insurance at all, and they don't, how can we make it more accessible so that it doesn't require surgery and the cost thereof, let alone the risk, but also that they might be able to get this, probably not over the counter, but at the pharmacy and pick it up. And maybe it lasts for three months like an S-string does and they just wear it. And when it runs out, then they go get the new one, right? So make it really easy. That's the whole idea. Allie Hessler, she's a urogynecologist in Northern California and this is her baby. She developed this and got the patent for it and this was really, you know, her thought process. I think neuromodulation is awesome, but not enough people can access it. How can we make it simpler and affordable? Great. So also, I mean, I guess a lot of patients, they, they don't want to take pills because it's, it's systemic side effects. Uh, they want something more localized without any side effects or, or just pure side effects. And, and when you go to imp, when you mentioned the implant, so that well, I don't want anything implanted. So definitely that that also something that you wearable that you can remove and is definitely a great idea. <laughs> yeah, well, we think so. <laughs> we hope it will come to fruition. So Suzette, I mean, we have covered a lot. We have mentioned a lot of things coming out there. Quick question: I mean, other than than the battery life in the synchronous rule that we that we do have, how about MRI compatibility? Is, is that something that you will include in something new? Yes, all of these things that we've talked about are MRI compatible. Yeah, that's on everyone's radar these days, right? Since we had such a cluster, I guess I would say, with the MRI issue and having perfectly fabulous leads explanted so someone could get an MRI. Luckily, I was never in that camp, but you know that, that just was unfortunate. So I'm glad again that those studies were finally done to show that the leads themselves are, you know, MRI safe, MRI compatible, I guess is the word, and the newest models that are coming out there, making sure that they are all compatible. So the Blue Wind is definitely MRI compatible. I believe the eCoin is as well, but it's so far removed if somebody needed to have an MRI of a head. I mean, those studies were also already done just with the traditional sacral nerve stimulators in place, showing that if you had a head MRI, it didn't affect what was happening in the pelvis. So 
they're all MRI compatible. So, which definitely opens up this box of neurogenic bladder patients. You already mentioned a patient with MS or a patient with Parkinson's or a patient with other things where they might have to have repeat MRIs. It definitely is not a contraindication any longer. And we do see more people having some experience with these types of patients and doing really pretty well. When I was a fellow, oh, so long ago now, I looked at a 15-year experience of neuromodulation with Steve Siegel. That's who I trained with in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and other people's experience as well. The data got compiled together, but there were definitely neurogenic bladder patients in that group, uh, you know, very much was at a center that pushed the envelope and thought outside the box and we don't have anything else to try, we might as well try it. And what we saw was, yeah, in those it worked that had Parkinson's, partial spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, these kinds of things, it worked in about 50% of those patients. And then in those that it did work, they got about 50 percent improvement. So we didn't see as stellar results up in the 80-90% that we saw with other traditional OAB patients, but we certainly saw improvement, right? And they, when they didn't have anything else at the time. So we know that it works. It's just, again, let's just try to fine-tune the therapy a little bit better geared towards those neurogenic bladder patients to see how can we optimize the therapy for that patient population. Exactly, exactly. And definitely, I mean, I, I see the patient that they, they start having first the overactivity, and then eventually they start becoming more flaccid, flaccid. And definitely in that acute phase of the overactivity, hopefully the neurologist can get the other conditions under control. But I definitely see an improvement. Like you mentioned, that flaccid bladder was a little bit different, more, more, more difficult to, to predict what's going to happen. So Susette, a, 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 anything else you want to add? Well, I think we covered a lot of things here. <laughs> well, what this really is shows, I mean, the whole purpose of this podcast really is just to let people know what is really happening in this area of neuromodulation. This is, is just booming. The idea of neuromodulation is booming in many other medical disciplines as well. They have their own international society, and it's really an exciting field. So I'm glad to see finally, some really great innovative advancements in our urology, urogynecology world. For the bladder, you mentioned non-obstructive urinary retention. We know it also, sacral nerve stimulation has proven to be effective for fecal incontinence. You know, will the tibial nerve, once it gets prime time again and more patients are able to use it, will we see improvement in that as well? And maybe even with the fempulse, we don't know. But I think you know, there's a lot of work that's being done in these areas now, finally, which is great now that we have all these kinds of options coming down the pike. Well, thank you, Suzette, for being back table. I'm sure this is not going to be the last time we hear from you. So thanks again. Thank you. It was really fun. It was great being here. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. 
with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.